0: If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at MagicalMeetings.com. Today, I'm with Tom Garrity, founder at psychsafety.co.uk, where he's on a mission to make the world of work a safer, higher performing, more inclusive, and equitable place. Welcome to the show, Tom.
1: Thank you so much. I'm super pleased to be here. I really appreciate it
0: yeah it's so great to have you and as usual let's get started with hearing a little bit about how you got your start in this work of psychological safety
1: yeah so my background is in tech and i started off in tech uh, sort of maybe 20 years years ago and started off as a sysadmin doing operation stuff uh, and then ended up in a larger operations team heading up operations for a big european uh, motor industry kind of thing and I'm being intentionally vague so no one can identify who who it was. And um, uh, my manager there was a very stereotypical kind of finger-pointy, shouty, screamy, blamey boss, you know, the sort of boss who has a vein pulsing out of their forehead when they get angry, that sort of of boss. And uh, we had a big open-plan office. Everyone worked in there, everyone worked together in this open-plan office, and he had this fancy glass cubicle in the corner. And every now and then he would come out of it, that glass cubicle and just rip someone apart for some, some minor mistakes some minor infraction or, uh, or, or, or just anything. Really. In fact, I, I remember him coming out and, and having a go at someone once for laughing. And so he created this culture of fear. He managed through a culture of fear. He led a culture of fear. And in fact, like out of work, he was a nice guy. He, he, he thought that leading through fear, managing through a culture of fear was the right thing to do. He thought that that was the way to a high performance team. But in fact, it was fairly obvious to me and many others that what was actually happening was that it was kind of calcifying and slowing down the organization. People were afraid to do anything. People were afraid to try anything. People were, people had to plan and plan and plan and plan just to be, in the most basic of tasks in case something went wrong. And so they, they could always say, look, I, I planned it. I, this is all the planning I did. And so technology got out of date. Uh, the stuff wasn't patched and updated because it was more interpersonally risky to do something than it was to do nothing the safest thing to do was t- to do nothing and it really held the organization back you could see you know we were getting out competed by competitors doing innovating or in fact not even innovating just keeping the pace of the market and so i decided i saw i saw this and i didn't know i didn't know what the name for it was i didn't know the terms safety cultures or psychological safety. But I knew from that point on, I wanted to do something different to that. And so from that point on, I, I, I was leading teams and I was building teams and I ended up in CIO, CTO roles subsequent to that. And I would often think what's the opposite of what he would do. I, I I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to build a safe culture. And then it was only a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago that I discovered the term psychological safety and it was a proper you imagine a light bulb going off on over my head. It's mm-hmm. a proper light bulb moment, proper epiphany moment. Like this is the thing. This is the thing I've been trying to do. And it was a huge, like it's, suddenly all the doors open, all the, all, all the, all the, the access to the knowledge and information kind of floodgated in because I was able to then hang all this stuff on a, on a term. And it also meant I could, that was what sparked off the creation of psych Cause I had, uh, a, t- a place I wanted to put all my stuff that I created in one place and share it with the world
0: amazing. I can totally relate with that story because as most listeners know, I was a software developer early in my career and became a cto and my journey was always kind of this funny combination of being interested in the tech but also being really curious about the people and how we support them and how we help them grow and so it sounds like we got to similar points and mm. I wanted to touch on something that you had mentioned about the boss and it was similar for me as well. Not only was I interested in the people and growing, but there's examples of folks that are like these anti-patterns that I was like, I don't, I don't want to be that, you know, like the boss that came in and just like made sweeping decisions about how everyone's destiny to look or be set up <laughs> and it, like just crazy things. Right. And as I was hearing your story, the, I was brought back to some of those moments and kind of got a little bit sympathetic with these folks because a lot of these are learned behaviors. The world of work has conditioned people to to behave and think they need to be that way, especially when you're talking about uh, him being a nice person outside of work. And so I'm just curious in your coaching and the work you're doing, how have you approached kind of helping people understand that it's learned behavior on both sides, right? Like looking at the boss and saying, wow, that's like, maybe they're just echoing or parroting things that they've seen and then likewise helping dismantle the behaviors for the folks that are doing those things
1: yeah that's and that's a really interesting point it's it's probably i think this aspect of psychological safety is probably one of the most most interesting you know that i that i think about in terms of psychological safety i think so first of all most of us learn management from our managers you know we 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 learn what management looks like we learn what management is through our own managers. And and because of the way time and careers work, most of the managers that we have, certainly early in our career, are themselves fairly uh, inexperienced, fairly junior managers. So there's this sort of feedback loop of sort of inexperienced managers teaching inexperienced people how to be inexperienced managers. And so we we don't always get exposed to the really, really competent managers and leaders until later on in our career and that's when we go we realize oh no that's not the way we should do things but sort of to add to that and probably the more interesting point to that is that so much of psychological safety and safety science and safety cultures are counterintuitive right so if we think about mistakes we think about a manager who wants to wants to have their team make fewer mistakes and that's a fairly noble aim it's a sensible thing to try and achieve in in a team we don't want mistakes to happen so let's Punish people for making mistakes because if we punish people for making mistakes, they'll make fewer mistakes, right? That's that's pretty logical. But in fact, what happens in the real world is counterintuitive to that. What actually happens in the real world? In fact, so so, say a manager starts blaming and and punishing mistakes over the next few weeks and months, they'll see fewer mistakes in the team, and they'll think that they're really successful. I'm doing a great job. The rate of mistakes are going down we're reporting fewer mistakes this is excellent until the, you know the big one blows up in their face but that's because by blaming and punishing for mistakes we're actually all we're doing is hiding them they're still there they're still there in the system they're still especially in tech you know someone leaves a bug in the system or makes a mistake or covers it up it's still sitting there ready to ready to explode or ready to cascade into failure and in fact this is what Amy Edmondson's research from 1999 showed in clinical teams the clinical teams that talked about their mistakes were able to do something about them and put in processes and mechanisms by which they they, they didn't happen so much in the future and they were able to mitigate them in the future. And that's the high-performing team. And the, the low-performing teams hit their mistakes. So they kept happening again. The same mistakes kept happening again. And the impact was so much greater. You know, we see the same thing with airlines. Sydney Decker's seen the same thing with airlines. The airlines that have the most incidents on their books are actually the airlines with the lowest passenger mortality rate. So we see this at like team level and organizational level as well.
0: You mentioned the importance of not punishing mistakes. And I'm curious if you've seen organizations where the punishment of mistakes isn't quite so obvious, but people still feel punished or are still noticing that it's um, either socialized in an awkward way or, you know, it's not like you're... Hey, go stand in the corner because you made a mistake. But what are the, some of the subtle ways you've seen people get punished for mistakes?
1: Oh yeah, in fact, this is this is far more common than actually punishing people for mistakes, right? And the, and, and this is what we see. We see this all the time. And in fact, in, in lots of workshops and sessions that I run, I find lots of leaders and managers, as we do some self-reflection, they realize, oh man, I'm I'm doing some of those things, and and it's things like if someone gives you bad news. Whether it's a mistake or it's just bad news, like the 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 project is overrunning, or 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 the, or the you know we've broken through the budget, or something's gone wrong, and we need to give the boss bad news, and their reaction is a sigh, or an eye roll, or a, or or some other just just a little physical or verbal tell that they're a bit disappointed, then yeah sure that's not as bad as like actually you know punishing someone and sending. to to the naughty corner or something but over time that will build that 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 um coagulates into 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 a team where they don't want to give the boss bad news and and they'll only tell the boss bad news if they really have to if the if the consequences of not telling them the bad news would be greater than the 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 consequences of telling the bad news so um yeah it's all those little verbal and physical tells like the eye roll and the sigh and the and the arms crossing and things like that. We should be really, really careful as leaders and managers. In fact, anyone on a team. To, if someone tells us bad news that we need to hear or it's, it's useful to hear, we should thank people for doing so. Even if inside we're thinking, oh no, that's my weekend ruined or whatever. You know, thank someone for thank them for doing so because it it took it took guts.
0: That reminds me of how people might be bringing in past trauma as well. Yeah. Because if they've gotten blamed a lot, then they may feel blamed, even though in the culture at this organization, we're just trying to understand what's happening. We're not trying to find somebody. We're just trying to find the truth. And I remember running into this with a startup that I was advising as a kind of a fractional CTO. They asked me to come help them diagnose some things at times, and whatnot. And so there was this, this one moment where things were going a little sideways. We we're trying to understand it. So we had a little a meeting to, to dive into it and was speaking with this contract developer and was asking some questions and trying to understand it and just kind of spoken and whatnot. And and I could tell they were getting really defensive. And so I started to ask about that and get curious, right? And they were like, well it seems like you're just trying to to point out what I did wrong. Yeah. And I was like, wait, well, this isn't about you. This is about us understanding how we can improve it and what we could put in place to avoid this. And so that just really spoke to me as like, uh, I'm glad I named it because then we could kind of talk about it a little bit in the, almost in this meta way. I'm just kind of curious if you've seen that, have any thoughts on those kinds of dynamics of people kind of coming in with this past trauma?
1: Yeah, yeah, I really do. I see, in fact, I was having a, uh, I was doing a workshop the other week and and I was talking to a, to a team and a, and a manager. In fact, their, their manager is so it was talking about the, the culture that they have, the culture that their team has. And they did they they did. They had a really good psychologically safe culture. They had a bunch of good practices and their manager kind of thought everything therefore everything is fine. But yeah, we dived into the the idea of this what would I sometimes call it like a psychological safety backpack this this rucksack mm. that we're carrying from all our previous experiences previous trauma previous managers who have screamed at us and shouted at us for some mistake and if and if the same sort of situation occurs in this new team however safe we feel in this new team there's going to be a little of that that muscle memory or that sort of mental that reaction reactionary memory that makes us feel a little bit like we we need to Put up a mask or or put up a shield and and be a bit more careful about how we interact even though there are no indications that that team are are unsafe at all but we're carrying yeah we're carrying this backpack and i think particularly in tech like you were just saying we've we've put together quite a lot of good practices things like in terms of um incident response uh, or incident analysis uh we started off with the five whys five whys are really effective all but you know we we've sort of moved on from there a bit and we're moving on to into uh, trying to sort of talk about blameless retrospectives blame aware retrospectives because we're now uh, sort of realizing we can't really be blameless like we're humans and we're wired to to try and find blame and find cause that's how we've evolved we've trying to point the finger at things and trying to find the cause of things or the root cause of things there's no such thing as one root cause so I think John Allsport talks about the infinite hows instead of the five whys and asking, this is kind of what you were just talking about, asking how did this happen or how did this event occur is far more powerful than asking why, why did this happen or or why did you do that? Because asking why does tend to lean into it starts to veer towards blame it starts to people sit there and think well why why did i do that or,
0: why elicits a justification how exactly. is more expansive right like we yeah. we start to contemplate like how did that happen
1: <laughs> yeah 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 we're talking about the real the real world and the, the the real the real things that happen not just why did i decide to do that uh, Sidney decker mm-hmm. talks about some really, really powerful stuff in in this way. So he, he talks about there being no such thing as human error. And, mm. and he's kind of right. Like, whenever we make a mistake, in tech, we can more easily envision this. And in, in other domains, it's not quite so easy. But in tech, you know, if we deploy something to production that then blows up, right? Something should have caught that. Something, some process, some tool, some gate, something should have caught it. Something should have stopped us, prevented us from making that mistake. And and if that did get into production, it's not us at fault. We didn't intend to release some some something that caught fire into production. So yeah, where's the human error in, in bringing production down?
0: Yeah, I see that applying to everything we do in work, right? Mm. And because I think in tech, there is oftentimes more documentation than we might see in other roles. Also, that software in itself is somewhat self-documenting, because like it is a procedural, right? It, is, it does a thing because we programmed it to do a thing. And if you look at it, you can say, oh, this is how it works. Or this is how the tests work, right? So the, these structures we create are processing of themselves. But when the process is more organic or there's handoffs across teams, it doesn't mean we can't write it down. And if we do write it down, then we can look and we can say, oh, we, we set that up wrong. It's mm. not like someone did it wrong. It's like no, they followed the procedure, right? <laughs> but like the procedure failed us.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of documentation. I think it's, I think it's super powerful. One of the things I really like is to see teams where they, I've seen teams where they, where, where an engineer, a developer, or whoever will record a little video, even record a video or a bit of audio, just explaining briefly why they made a certain decision, why they made, why they. You architected it this way instead of that way. Why they coded it this way instead of that way, or instead of a number of other ways, because it's because documentation, documentation is really effective at telling us what this thing does and what it should do, and what it you know what the input is and what the output should be. What it doesn't often tell us is why is it like that? You know the amount of code, and the amount of systems we look at, even stuff that we built ourselves over six months ago, we look at and go, why is it like this? Well, that—that's mm. yeah. I wouldn't build it like that, and then, you know, you you make a change, you rebuild it, and and then you realize, ah, oh, no, it's built like that because of this this thing way over here. Um. So, yeah, those we're going back to the whys. Like those whys are really powerful.
0: Yeah, and you know what comes to mind to me, and this shows up in our work a lot, is the storytelling that's happening when you get on the video. And narrative is different than technical writing. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about in that documentation tends to be like, we tend to have a technical writer hat on when we're doing documentation, right? And when we're making a video, we're more in the storytelling mode. It's like campfire time. So we're likely to get more into the purpose, the why. And, and we're going to have more passion. That's Our cares and our deepest desires are going to come out more when we're on video and talking and people can connect to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. The motivation and the why and the, and the rationale
0: Really powerful. So you were talking about hiding mistakes mm. earlier, and it struck me as, uh, and there's this. You kind of hit on this in the intro too. I like to think about how sometimes safe teams can look quite messy and a bit chaotic. Yeah. Right. Whereas the unsafe teams might be orderly and might seem to have everything together, and it's because they're hiding things. Right. They're given the curb appeal. Right. As everything's <laughs> whitewashed and looks like yeah. it's like clean and whatnot and i'm just wondering if you've noticed that pattern and maybe some of the telltale signs that like hey this chaos is good chaos or this is actually good
1: yeah yeah and i think a lot of this actually comes back to some of the agile principles devops principles and stuff like that because most psychologically safe teams will work more in experiments than well-architected waterfall plans you know a a well-planned, a heavily planned project or team looks very controlled, right? But often a lot of that plan and a lot of the output is actually just fiction. It's just it's just what we're reporting on. It's not what we're really doing. We also might not be moving that quickly at all. We're just, we're, we're doing the safe things. We're doing the things that are safe to execute on. Whereas, yeah, the psychologically safe team, they're thinking of ideas, they're making a bet. They know it's safe to, or they're identifying the things that are safe to fail on, like some things aren't safe to fail so but, but we can we can design experiments that are small enough and and focused enough that we can accept or embrace failure and we can learn from failure like I, I i talk a lot about experimentation and psychological safety because the, the only experiment that failed is the one we didn't learn from I, i'm always reminded of um elon musk's all his rockets that he tried to land you know tried to land backwards and so many of them blew up on the platform, but some great footage of when they land and they blow up and you can hear and see him saying, that was great. That, that was great. We learned loads from that. This is great. That's a great test. Well done team. Brilliant work. And it's just blown up on the platform. Like it's, it's, it's a huge rocket exploding. So in another team in another, in a different world, that would be a massive failure. But, In a team that embraces failure and learns from it, it can look more chaotic, it can look like they're failing all the time, but actually they're learning all the time and they're getting better at what they're doing all the time. So yeah, a more psychologically uh, psychologically safe team will look, could look more chaotic. It certainly look more unsure, more unpredictable, more iterative.
0: Yeah, they're embracing the emergence. And so the emergence becomes more obvious and more transparent.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, I wanted to bring up something about in the intro, you said it was safe to do nothing in the Mm -hmm. the organization. I was planning on bringing that up. And then you just said, some teams just do the safe thing. And then you talked about uh, what is safe to do in a psychologically safe team. So it kind of came full circle because it dawned on me, or I had this epiphany that safe is what you define it as. Yeah. And what do you make safe in the organization, right? And psychological safety is a way of a lens at looking at how do we create safety for people to speak their minds and say things but also another lens for that could be what are the activities what are the things that we w- want to encourage and allow people to feel more confident doing like how can we define what we want to be safe
1: so that's a good question i think i think to some degree this comes back to so i mentioned amy edmonton's research earlier the the, the research she did in so it was 1999 and she was studying clinical teams um who, who were and, and she was looking at the number of mistakes they made and through her research and then she did some qualitative research into the into the teams themselves she came up with the definition of psychological safety that, that is about someone feeling safe in a team to ask questions raise concerns admit mistakes and take interpersonal risks and I think it's really important to sort of surface those those different things like it, it's different if we, if we don't feel safe to, to, to suggest our ideas, like, uh, so our ideas normally are in our head and they're quite safe because no one can get them there. No one can criticise them while they're still in our head. And But if we take them out of our head and put them on the table, then they're they're there. They're vulnerable for all to see and criticise and, and change. But that's a good thing, right? But, but if we're not safe to do that, we're never going to come up with new ideas. And what we want to actually foster, what we want to create is a world where it's safe to suggest unformed, as yet incomplete ideas. So we, we, we talked about mistakes earlier. Like we, we we definitely want to create environments where people can admit their mistakes and, and surface their mistakes, because if we don't admit our mistakes, that results in disaster, right? That results in disasters like Chernobyl, uh, the Volkswagen emission scandal, Enron, the global financial crisis, all sorts of things. If we don't create an environment where people can lay out the mistakes on the table, even the unformed, immature, incomplete ones, the ones that they're not yet sure about, but they just think there's something there that we're not going to innovate. We're not going to do anything new. And so this is what I like about this is Another thing I like about psychological safety, because where, whatever type of organization or team you're in, whether you're in a sort of risk averse, highly safety, critical world, whether it's finance or nuclear power or healthcare or whatever. So you, you're in a risk averse space. Or the other end of the spectrum where you're in the highly innovative, you know, fail fast, move fast and break things kind of world. a presence of psychological safety contributes to both those endeavors, both those goals. It, it helps us avoid mistakes and mitigate mistakes, but it also helps us innovate faster and do more things, do more interesting things quicker and try out the, 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 the experiments to see if they, see if they even work.
0: So when you were chatting with me pre-show, we were kind of talking a little bit about the misperceptions or the myths, hmm. so that reminds me of that because you're kind of sharing these definitions and these kind of like nuances around psychological safety, but kind of expanding on that definition or um, it might be interesting to highlight some of the myths or misperceptions around where people get stuck or where do they get it wrong
1: if If we go back to the the, the definition one the, the the a shared belief. The team is safe for interpersonal risk taking, or uh, and that um, you feel safe to uh, raise concerns, admit mistakes, ask questions, and when people hear the sort of this interpersonal risk taking and the, and the, and those sorts of definitions, sometimes in some cultures people can feel that this is a, that psychological safety is a a bit like wrapping people in cotton wool. It's a it's a bit of a, a soft snowflakey sort of sort of approach to, to team building or, or leadership and 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 there are some leaders out there many managers out there I suspect who who feel that no they're they're the uh they're the iron fist in a velvet glove kind of approach you know but I think it's worth it's worth diving into this because that, it is a bit of a myth that psychological safety means just comfort or sheltering the team from the real world or, you know wrapping them in cotton wool because it's really not there's there's a lot of great work being done by the U.S. Uh, Army, the uh, British, the British Army as well, um, special forces, into psychological safety in their squadrons. And so another, another sort of maybe a maybe another myth actually is that hierarchy is bad for psychological safety, and that's not necessarily the case. Hierarchy can be bad for psychological safety. It depends on. On whether the uh, on the structures and and how the hi- hierarchy is used, but hierarchy, you know, the army, for example, is incredibly hierarchical. You've got ranks and and divisions and squadrons and all the rest of the stuff, and and you you have to, uh, you know, you have to do what your what your commanding officer tells you to do. But in 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 army in military squadrons, psychological safety is high and it's in it's engendered to to be high because you need to know that your 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 squad. Have your back, have your six and but it's in part that that hierarchy that actually builds that psychological safety it enables people to understand exactly what their role is, what their responsibility is, what their boundaries of decision making and authority are, and it's that predictability in within the unit that helps foster psychological safety, but going back to the to wrapping in cotton wool thing, those squadrons they're not wrapped in cotton wool, you know they're being sent into incredibly dangerous environments. Uh, and, and being asked to do incredibly challenging, dangerous dangerous things. But they do so, they're able to do so through that great deal of psychological safety. And there's more examples of you know, mountaineering and climbing and, 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 and other, other incredibly dangerous endeavours where a high level of psychological safety is the thing that allows people to face such existential danger, a lack of real-world safety.
0: And it's interesting that you bring up the hierarchy because it seems like the hierarchy gets the blame a lot when it's really how the hierarchy is instrumented mm. and, and what people are doing up and down the chain, right? Like what behaviors are they reinforcing and well, how are they taught to be in their position and support various behaviors up and down?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm reminded of the uh, power over versus power to Mm. kind of dichotomy like in many hierarchies people consider it power over i that they have power over them i have power over these people in a well designed hierarchy that's got a it's a generative culture a progressive culture that hierarchy is used to to provide power to the people who need to do the thing and and that's that's the difference you know it's whether you're empowering or taking power from and hierarchies can do both just like you say it's it's how it's used or abused
0: yeah it also reminds me of the messiness too, right that i kind of brought up which is you know it's not necessarily about into your usual words the cotton wool it's like sometimes it might be uncomfortable sometimes it might be scary and not feeling great but if i can speak my mind and let people know things are happening in an unexpected way then we'll all benefit. We might save all our lives, and you know, in the military example.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. One one of the examples I I use quite often is is that of um, uh, Nims Dye and his team of Sherpas, who who I think last year completed their 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 mission to summit the fourteen highest peaks in the world in seven months, when the previous record was seven years. And part of the reason they were able to do that was because they. They had they were a tight knit team of incredibly accomplished experienced expert individuals, but a big part of the reason they're able to do so is is that psychological safety that for example, when they're climbing up the mountain, if one of them spots a an avalanche, what they think might be an avalanche risk, say over 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 to their side, they feel psychologically safe to raise that and point that out, whereas maybe on a different team. They'd be accused of being oh don't worry you know you're just being negative or something like that. Um, The 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 safety and being able to point out the dangers or raise concerns like I'm getting a headache it might be a cerebral edema we need to I think we need to go back down 500 meters or something like that. That's what enables teams to do such incredible things. Yeah, and it's not about wrapping people in cotton wool. It's 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 about that that safety in being able to face. The danger.
0: Two things come to mind that kind of related, right? It's like basically two ends of the spectrum. You know, one end of the spectrum, there's kind of, I think you used the word weaponizing psychological safety in the pre chat. And on the other end of the spectrum, we're kind of so safe and maybe so tolerant and so curious that we maybe we're prioritizing conversations or listening to things that aren't providing business value. So how do we find that sweet spot of making sure that we, like f- take the the mountaineering example. Let's say someone's just so afraid of avalanches, like every little noise, there's like, might be an avalanche, you know, that's not going to be a healthy mountaineering group, right? Like, cause mm. you got to like, so any tips or advice to avoid either one of those ends of those spectrums?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good call actually, because in a psychologically safe team, other members of the team will feel safe to speak about, safe to surface the behaviours and dynamics of everyone in the group. And so if if there is someone in the group who is uh, who's who's behaving in a certain way that's, that's detrimental to, 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 to getting the job done, um, or, or even detrimental to the psychological safety of, of the group itself, um, then members of the group feel safe to call that out without fear of repercussion, without fear that they're going to be punished for doing so so in a say in a, a software development team you know if you've got one person in the group who uh, i don't know say they always turn they, they turn up to stand-ups they always turn up to stand-ups five minutes late and they do so because they feel safe they, they feel sort of comfortable they feel like there's an environment where they're not going to get punished or there's no there's no consequences but actually a true psychologically safe team doesn't mean zero consequences for for bad behavior. I mean in fact it almost means the opposite. It means we we more rigidly and more explicitly talk about those boundaries of behavior and what we expect and don't expect. And that evolves over time. We're not we're not we're not going to be able to set a social contract or something you know at, at year 1 and that stays true and stays immovable for for the next few years. This has to evolve. You know, we're going to discover boundaries and behaviors and things that we need to add or remove from the, from this contract as it were. Mm.
0: So thinking about the other end of the spectrum, which is that kind of weaponized psychological safety or psychological safety at all costs. I think you even mentioned this like notion of positive vibes. Mm. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, or if you've encountered teams like that, how you coach them or advice you have.
1: Yeah, one of the things I've, I do come across is this kind of positive vibes only, this good vibes only environment. Where, and it comes from good intentions, right? It comes from people trying to do the right thing and, and kind of create really nice cultures, really good cultures. But it, what it can result in is a is a team where where any concern, any criticism, anything that's considered bad news or, or negative is is shut down. And it's shut down because you're, you know, you're, you're you're destroying our vibe. You know, we've got a good vibe here. You know, don't, and again, this 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 psychological safety doesn't mean freedom from discomfort. It means embracing the discomfort, talking about it, and servicing those things. So if someone does have a genuine concern about a project, say a, a project that's running over time, running over running over budget, and maybe maybe someone thinks they should we should just cancel this project. It's just you know this is not going anywhere, and and we should we should can it now is you know, sort of good vibes only team we don't want to have that discussion let's, let's just carry on it'll be fine but actually the you know the sensible thing might might be to to can it so we need to have those discussions if someone's being overly cautious overly concerned then yeah a psychologically safe team will also be able to have that discussion
0: yeah, it's making me think about, you know, General Patton's quote that if everyone's thinking the same, nobody's thinking. Yeah, or yeah. Sloan had an interesting thing about one of his uh, meetings that he canceled because there were no points of disagreement. But the the thing is is like a, a psychologically safe team is going to have points of disagreement. You know, they're going to yeah. have different points of view. So if like everything's smooth sailing and no one's interjecting with different ideas that are like not going with the grain, either we don't have a diverse enough team or there's probably a lack of psychological safety.
1: Yeah, and I'm really pleased that you've just said diversity or or diverse enough team because because this is a key point. And this is, there's some really interesting research by Amy Edmondson and others looking into diversity, psychological safety, and performance of teams. Now, her research and loads of other research shows that psychological safety is harder to achieve in a diverse team so the more diverse a team is the more difficult it is to obtain to to build a a degree of psychological safety because we all come with these different different behaviors different contexts different experiences that we bring into the room and psychological safety is kind of really easy to well easier to achieve in a very homogenous team we're all we're all the same we're all bringing the same experiences you can imagine a room full of like silicon valley bros all getting together they've never met each other before but you know put a few of them in a room they're probably going to feel psychologically safe the moment they walk in But we put uh, put together a team of really diverse individuals from all around the world, speaking different languages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different neurodiversities. It's going to require more work to build that psychological safety. However, what's really interesting is that once we've put in that work to build psychological safety in that more diverse team, the the potential performance of that diverse team is way higher than the homogenous team. So it's kind of a an accelerant like a catalyst psychological safety is a catalyst for performance in the presence of diversity and teams. so yeah diverse teams do perform better they they bring more ideas to the table but we need that psychological safety in order for them to 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 feel safe and putting their ideas on the table and speaking up mm.
0: one thing i wanted to hit on before we wrap today is this idea of long-lived versus short-lived teams and how our tactics or our approach for psychological safety might differ. And this is something we spoke about in the pre-show chat. So just for our listeners, I might uh, take a moment to explain what we mean. You know, short-lived being, hey, we want to create a space. We might be doing some participatory design with the community. These people are coming together for a few days or even just a few hours. And we want to create an environment where people can speak their minds and make it comfortable and But then also there's long-lived safety, which is, you know, a team, a sports team or a company. And we want to foster uh, that teamwork together over, you know, months and and years even. So I'm I'm curious, like, how that surfaced for you as far as, like, different techniques or considerations.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting challenge because it is, they're, they're very different cases. Like, just as you said, for for example, in the uh, with a long lived sports team, you know, a sports team that play, you know, I don't, play every weekend, and they do, it. they've been going for years. They know each other really well. They, they're, they, you know, they they know they know what, what each other like. They know each other's strengths and weaknesses. They know how people behave on the team. They know, you know, which one's the introvert, which which member of the team is the extrovert, and they, they so they understand each other. They, they innately, implicitly understand what it means to be on that team what what the boundaries expectations what the limits of behavior are and what what's expected of them on that team now if we come together as a short-lived group it's much more difficult to build that psychological safety because psychological safety i think one one way of looking at it uh, is about predictability interpersonal predictability if we come together as a as a group especially a big group so the the, the bigger generally the bigger a group is the more difficult it is to build psychological safety. You know, it's, if we've got just got a group of three or four people, that's going to be much easier than three or 4,000 people. But if we're coming together and convening just for a short amount of time, what we need to try and do is create shortcuts. If you like, we need to sort of create these little shortcuts to predictability. And we might not have the time for every single person to sort of really deeply get to know each other. But what we can do is create systems, scaffolds in place, to aid with that predictability. So a a social contract, like a temporary social contract for the space is really, really powerful. Uh, Whether it's, if you're on a remote Zoom call or whatever, you know, whether it's just talking about whether you have cameras on, cameras off, what the mechanism is for speaking up, whether you raise your hand, whether you just speak up, whether there's a little button to press or something like that. All those little things, anything that matters to people, anything that increases the... the the known space that we're in, the knowability of the space that we're in and the knowability Mm. of the people within it. Uh, And so the predictability of sort of what will be the consequences to me if I speak up with an idea, ask a question, admit a mistake, raise a concern. Getting closer to to knowing what the consequences of doing those things are vastly aids in, in psychological safety and of course aids in the outcome of the group of whatever you're trying to achieve in in that session. So all the, yeah, all these scaffolds, particularly things like social, social contracts, um, great facilitation techniques, really good practices, workshop practices, even, you know, tools, tools like Miro or jamboard and whatever, they, they Mm -hmm. can help because they can help us uh, help with the, um, the mechanism of putting our, our, our ideas on paper in, in brackets. Yeah,
0: as you're talking, a few things came to mind just from some facilitation fundamentals, right? Like you mentioned the why earlier, and I love the idea of the infinite why. And so it can be important to clarify purpose because if people Mm -hmm. are united by a shared purpose, that can make them feel more safe because it's something they believe in. And if the facilitator is really attentive to signals, they might see where someone's like a little bit like they're holding back or they're not speaking much, right? I think also, if the facilitator is modeling the behaviors, I've even seen people model mistakes early on. So that it just creates a space where it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. Right. Like it's almost like treating the container like a petri dish, right? Like to your point, these norms or these behaviors we want to agree to today, like people can't learn that for the long term, but we can certainly like try and make that happen in the next two hours. And I think. A lot of people hate on icebreakers. And I think that's because people use icebreakers. just They're just going to throw them around like candy. Mm-hmm. If you really want safety, why not choose an icebreaker that models safety and we can create that? And it probably won't stick like permanently, but it might, you know, there's a half life to that, but it'll yeah. stick around long enough for that two hour workshop.
1: Yeah. So uh, admitting new mistakes is a really, really powerful way of doing it. You know, c- celebrating failure. There's, there's all mm-hmm. sorts of, practices and sort of ceremonies you can do around that there's in fact there's even uh, I'm aware of a, a sort of an event called fuck up nights where people yeah. it's like a meetup and people go to and and they share all their massive mistakes and it's such a powerful thing to do and and I think particularly particularly for tech teams well actually no, know for any team I would say but but I think I I see this in tech teams where the more experienced engineers, the engineers with you know, a few years or or decades of experience behind them, just them admitting their mistakes and just talking about the big outages they've caused. You know, the ones that are named after them, the, the those <laughs> big, big mistakes. That's such a powerful way of breaking this uh, this breaking down this fear, breaking this fear of of, of admitting mistakes and 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 creating creating a safe space to admit those mistakes. For for other people in the team, particularly the junior folks who are who are still pro- still probably convinced that if they deploy one bug to production, that's their career over.
0: Yeah, I remember a friend's startup, and we were actually at the same conference together when this happened. So we were both CTOs at a tech conference. Uh, we were kind of sitting next to each other at the at one of the keynotes, and all of a sudden, his pager starts going off. It's back when we used to have pagers, you know, and, uh, and he, he's like, and oh, I knew something was bad because because like you know. He was at a conference and they knew not to bug him. Someone had like basically deleted the whole database or at least enough of it to cause major problems. And so it took him away from the conference pretty much for the rest of the conference. They restored it from backups, maybe lost like an hour of data or something. And it wasn't a huge loss. And I remember he shared the story on some online forum and majority of the comments said, don't let her anywhere near the database again. And he said, "He, I remember his comment back to them that, I put her in charge of all future database updates.
1: Yeah, damn right.
0: Someone that goes through that experience and that yeah. level of trauma is going to be the most cautious person on production from that day forward, right? Yeah. And not punishing mis- mistake at that level sends a really strong message.
1: It does. It does. And and it it, it recognizes that we learn a lot more from mistakes innately, we learn a lot more from mistakes than we do from successes. Cause the successes it's so hard to pinpoint what went right in a in a success. This is there's a concept known as safety one and safety two, which are really, really interesting because safety one looks at what went wrong and, and examining what went wrong and what were the factors that, that made something, you know, an incident occur. Um safety two looks at what went right. How do we make what went right? Mm happen more often um and we need you know we need both approaches, but yeah, you're absolutely right there those folks who have really got those um those 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 battle wounds from 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 the big the big incidents the big outages they're they're, they're the people you want you weren't running your high availability systems for sure
0: so we're kind of coming up at the end here and i want to make sure to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought
1: yeah, so a final thought around psychological safety i think if I was if I was going to ask people to do one thing, I, th- I think the so I should say the mission of of me and and uh, and our our business, uh, psychsafetyco.uk and everything around safety is to make the world of work a safer, higher performing, more inclusive and equitable place. That's our that's our north star. You know that's how we we, we work out what we what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. Um, If other people feel the same, if other people have a similar sort of goal, if that feels like something you feel like is a good mission, a good thing to try and do, head over to psychsafety.co.uk. You can sign up to the newsletter, which goes out every week. There's a whole bunch of stuff around psychological safety and various subjects and stuff, research and other things in in the newsletter that goes out each week. There's an online community of, uh, I think, we're more than 500 people now. There's regular meetups. The last meetup was great. Uh, in fact, all the meetups have been great. Our last meetup was uh, Sam Newth at Red Hat talking about neurodiversity and psychological safety and autism and that whole sphere. That was fascinating. And yeah, there's and there's also a whole bunch of resources, tools, articles, and, and and other information available at psychsafety.co.uk. So if there's anything you want, head over there. And if there's anything I haven't covered or any other questions people have, then you can email me at tom at psychsafety.com. UK and, and we, can, we can do some cool stuff together.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll make sure those links are in the show notes along with the research you mentioned about Amy so people can dive in deeper and reach out to you. And I want to say appreciate all the work you're doing.
1: And it was a pleasure
0: chatting today, Tom.
1: I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com